Welcome to episode 263 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Karen, Darlene, Lucy, and Catherine. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Karen, Darlene, Lucy, and Catherine for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we, uh, the recovery show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in this sharing that speaks to your life. Today, as I mentioned last week, I'm sharing with you a presentation by Mary Pearl T. on Step 2. Step 2. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. A higher power. What was my higher power? I was my higher power. There was no higher power than me. Now, I wasn't always like that, but from the age of 12 I was. You see, my daddy, I worshipped my daddy. We had all the fun in the world together. And my daddy would take me with him fishing and hunting because he retired and he raised bird dogs. And we trained them and we'd go hunting and we'd go fishing. And I just loved being with my daddy. My mother was a workaholic. My mother felt like if you weren't working and producing something, you had no value whatsoever. So she would stay at home, and when I'd go to my mother about something, she'd say, shut up, leave me alone, can't you see I'm busy? My daddy always had time for me. I made the mistake of thinking daddy loved me and mama didn't. Mama loved me, but not in the way that my daddy showed it. My daddy was an affectionate person. And so I didn't know that. Well, on November the 30th of 1954, when I was 12 years old, I watched my daddy die of a heart attack, and my world ended. And I knew that we went to church every time the doors opened and that kind of thing, and I knew it was all a lie, because if God loved me, he wouldn't have taken my daddy and left me with a witch. It was just real simple. And so I turned my back on any kind of spiritual guidance from that point forward. It's like, did I quit going to church? No, you had to go to church, but you just don't buy the deal. You know, you just sit there, you go through the motions, you say what they expect you to say. You know, you learn to do those kind of things. But do you believe it on the inside for you? No, I did not. I did not believe that God loved me. I did not believe that God cared for me. I did not believe that God would be there walking with me through my life. I had no idea that was happening. And you know, that's the neat thing about God. Whether you know it or not, it doesn't change the fact that He is. And He does. But anything that happened to me that was good, I thought was good luck or something that I had done. Anything that was bad was your fault or God was trying to get me. That was my attitude when I came. And so I told my sponsor, I said, I don't believe in God. She said, you don't have to. Just believe in a power greater than you. And I said, well, what do you... She said, well, is what you're doing working? No. Well, then... Take some direction outside of yourself. So my sponsor became my higher power for a while. And then my group, more, you know, two heads are better than one. That was my higher power. And it's just like the step says. 
came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I came and I came and I came and one day I came too. And then I could believe. It was a process for me. It was not an event of one day. You know, you hear it over and over in the meetings used to let go and let God, let go and let God. You know, we don't say that so much in our meetings anymore. I don't know why, but you just don't hear it a lot. And it's let go and let God, let go and let God. And so what happened, I was driving down the road, and my car had been giving me lots of problems. And I had taken it in, and the guy had told me, he says, your carburetor is full of trash. It needs to be cleaned out. And he said, what happens is that you're driving along and my car would just turn itself off and I was powerless because I had power steering, power brakes, all like that. Now you've got to just, it's like herding a logging wagon over to the side and trying to get it stopped. And um, he said, uh, you need to get your carburetor rebuilt. And I said, I don't have any money to get my carburetor rebuilt. You see, my husband had gotten sober and he got fired. And he was out of work for over six months. And so I was the only support of the family, and it was doing well to be able to afford my lunches and things. And it was like, I, I, I just can't afford it. And so the guy said, well, here, he says, what happens is, he says, trash is getting in those jets on that carburetor. And if you take your breather off and you pour a little gas in the top and start your car, it's going to backfire. Maybe that'll knock that trash loose enough to where it'll get you along. And it would. It would do that. And if you don't mind smelling like a gas pump all day long. And, uh, but you do what you have to do. And, and I do that about every day or two. And then it got to where I was having to do it every day. And then I got to where I was having to do it more than once a day because it was getting worse and worse. And, uh, I just, I just couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. It was getting on my last nerve. I don't know about y'all, but after a while you just get worn down. You just can't stand it anymore. And so on this one particular day going home from work, I went by to see the nemesis on my way home, my mother. (laughs) I never went to my mother's that I didn't leave there hurt and mad. Because if you hurt me, it made me mad. Remember, any feeling I have is anger. And my mother would say very cruel and mean things to me. And she was just being mother. And I would take those things to heart. Because, you see, I kept going to my mother wanting her to approve of me. I wanted to hear my mother just say one time, I love you. You know, that wasn't going to happen. Because no matter what I did, it was never enough. I never could do it to right. I never could do it enough to suit my mother. And so I left there that day, and I got a few blocks away, and my car stopped again. And I was just worn completely out. And all of a sudden, in my head, I heard, let go and let God. Let go and let God. And I'm going, this is a car. Yeah, you know, isn't it funny how we have these conversations in our head that's just, you know, a whole committee going off at once, you know. And um, so I got out, and I had just a little bit of gas left in that, and I said, okay, God, if there be a God for me. Now, I believe there was God for other people because they were good people, they were nice, they hadn't done the things I had done. I wasn't worthy of God loving me. And I was afraid that if I asked God to do something, and he refused, it was all over. So if you never ask, you don't have to be worrying about it. But I was worn out. And so that day I said, God, if there be a God, this is Mary Pearl Thompson. I live at 409 Healy Street in North Little Rock, Arkansas. You see, I didn't want God to mix me up with anybody else. And I'm serious, you know. And I said, all I want to do is just get home. 
I'm just tired. I'm worn out. I want to get home. And I started my car, and it backfired, and then it quit. And then I tried to start, and it was just jerking and whatever. And I said, God, it won't get there like that. It won't get there. And I tried again, and it was still missing. I said, God, can't you just straighten this thing out and get me home? That's all I'm asking. It's not a big deal. I just want to get home. And just like that, the engine straightened out, and I drove home. And when I pulled in my driveway, I did something I had never done before in my life. I got out of the car. I knelt down by the side of my car in my grass, and I thanked a power greater than me for getting me home. And that began the journey. That began the journey. Because you can't do much without a higher power. You just can't do it, you know. This first step is I can't, and the second step is God can. And you see, God could do something I couldn't do. I couldn't make that car do. And, you know, immediately I went in the house, and within an hour's time, I got a telephone call from a girlfriend I'd gone to school with whose daddy was a top mechanic at a dealership there, and he had retired. And I hadn't heard from her in years. And she said, how are things going? Well, you know how we are. Well, God, let me tell you about my car. My car is just falling apart, you know. And so she said, well, why don't you call my daddy? I bet he'd fix it. I said, I don't have any money to get it fixed. And she said, well, my daddy's retired. I bet he'd fix it and let you pay it off as you could. I said, you think? And she said, well, why don't you call him and see? And so I called her daddy. He was over there in about 30 minutes with a record, picked up my car, took it, fixed it, gave me another car to use until it was ready. You see, all of a sudden now, that God that I had called for help, things are beginning to happen now in my life. And these may seem like little things, but they were major miracles. And I couldn't wait to call my sponsor and say, guess what God did for me? And she says, oh, I'm so glad. I was so tired of praying for you all the time. Because, <laughs> see, I'd call her and I'd say, well, you pray to your God because, see, I don't have one. And so she'd say, I'll pray for you. You know, and so she, I leaned on her faith till I could have some, you know. And so anyway, then I began to realize that there's no such thing as good luck. It's called God luck. You know, and God began to do little things for me. And it was those little everyday miracles, those little things, you know. And uh, I had a girl one time says, God never does anything for me. I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, anytime you see something good happening in your life, you take a marble and put it in a little glass vase on your windowsill. And I said, we'll call that your miracle jar. And every time something good happens, you put that little marble in there. And I said, and then in the morning when the sun comes through that window, you can see all that miracle, that rainbow will happen in your room because the rainbow is a big miracle. And she said, okay. And, you know, I've, I've had thousands of marbles on my windowsill in big jars and stuff and then transfer them over into urns and things because there's miracles happening every day in your life, whether you're aware of it or not. And it took me a while to realize that that power that I came to believe in that day going down the highway, going home, I began to see where that same power had been working in my life all my life. I just never gave him credit. I just never gave him credit for what he was doing. I took credit or thought it was just good luck, you know, those kind of things. Because, you know, I found that seeing is believing. Faith is believing without having to see. But I had to see to believe to begin with. 
You know, it's like taking baby steps. Before you can take big giant steps, you got to learn how to walk, you know. And I knew my sponsor believed, and so therefore she would believe, you know. So I met the God of my understanding on the England Highway going home that day. Later on, my sponsor said to me, she says, you going to the convention? And I said, what's that? She says, well, they have the old granddad. It's the biggest AA convention, the oldest west of the Mississippi down in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I said, well, you know, we can't afford to go to any convention. J.D.'s not got a job. And I went and she said, it was a yes or no question. Isn't it funny how we get a yes or no question and we go into this dissertation, you know, and, and I just wait till they get through and I'll go, it was a yes or no question. I just love it when I can pass those things on she did to me. You know, that's how you get revenge, you know. Anyway, she said, uh, well, have you prayed about it? No. Because you see, it wasn't my custom to pray about every little thing. You pray about main, bigger things. But she said, well, why don't you ask God if it's his will that you go to the convention? What a concept. So I go home and I said to my husband, I said, J.D., I said, my sponsor says uh, we ought to go to that convention. And he says, well, you know, my sponsor says the same thing. And he said, but how are we going to I said, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. And he said, uh, oh. And I said, well, my sponsor suggested we pray about it. You want to pray together about it? Do we have to pray out loud? (laughs) And I said, no, I guess so. I usually do, but that's okay. And so that night before we went to bed, we knelt together by the side of the bed, first time ever. We held hands, and I said, God, if we're supposed to go to the convention, please show us a way. Please help. That's it. No big deal. A big prayer. Got up the next day and went to work. Now, I found out in prayer, my sponsor said, if there's something you're supposed to do, you do that. And what you can't do, God will do for you. So what can I do? I can call and make a hotel reservation. We had a company watch line. wouldn't cost me anything. So I got on the phone. I called down to Hot Springs, made a reservation. 30 minutes later, J.D. called. He'd gotten a job. He'd gotten a job. We had knelt together, and he got a job. How amazing was that? And so then I began to figure, let's see. Now, how much is it going to cost? There's registration. There's the hotel room. There's the gas down to Hot Springs and back. There's the, the meals and stuff. And I began to figure out what we'd have to have, bare minimum, if we ate cheese and crackers for every meal. You know, it wouldn't be optimum, but I mean, it would be survivable, but you'd get to go to the convention. And so uh, we're saving. Now, my, see, my sponsor told me it wasn't right for me to take the money that I needed to pay bills to go to the convention because that was taking away from the people that I owed the bills. So this had to be above and beyond. Well, now J.D.'s working, but he'd been off over six months, so we were behind. So this was very tricky, how to save a few dollars. And uh, so anyway... Uh, J.D. said to me one night, he says, I don't have anything to wear to a convention. You see, we didn't know. We had never been. And God forbid you should ask somebody something. Because then they'll know you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so always the convention, you think in terms of suit and nice clothes and what have you. And so I said, I don't know how in the world we're going to afford you a new suit. Because these were the days of polyester. Back in the 70s. 
And um, <laughs> J.D. was a smoker. And when he drank, his, so his clothes looked like colanders, you know, where he'd drop his ashes and they'd melt all these little holes all over him. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, the colander man. Um, no, we couldn't have that. And so it was real funny because I got a, a thing in the mail from a, a mail order place in Chicago that had a closeout on suits. Said it was um, a t- two pairs of pants, a reversible vest, and a jacket for forty nine ninety five, and that was nothing back then. And I thought, can't be much. My sponsor said, "Well, you'll never know if you don't try, do you?" And so I said, "We've prayed, okay." So we sent off to get the the deal. And uh, the week of the convention, the suit came in, and I had already uh, checked all of our finances, and we were $35 short at a bare minimum. And I thought, well, we've tried. We tried, but we're $35 short, and so I can go to work tomorrow, and I can call and cancel, and it won't cost us anything. And so J.D.'s trying on that suit that night, and when he puts on that second pair of pants, and it was a gorgeous suit, that was amazing to me, he said, wait a minute, he says, is there an inspection tag or something here in the pocket? And he pulls out a 20, a 10, and a 5. And I said, I'd never have thought to tell God to put it there. We sat there and we held each other and we cried. And we thanked God for making it possible for us to go to the convention. And when we got there, somebody invited us out for every meal. So we didn't have to eat cheese and crackers in the room, you know. Because the people of Alcoholics Anonymous knew we were struggling and we were trying and we were newcomers. And they were out. And they're the most loving group of people, Alcoholics and Al-Anons, that there are. And so it was time for the, the, the banquet was going to be on Saturday night. And so we had our cheese and crackers. And the thing about it was they had the, the, so many people, 1,800 people back in those days was major convention. And um, they had it on closed circuit TV in your room because we couldn't get a, a ticket to go. And uh, so we were sitting there feeling sorry for ourselves. We're going to watch it in the room. Now, the fact that we've had all these meals and all this stuff, we're going to feel sorry for ourselves. You know, gratitude doesn't last long with newcomers. <laughs> and there was a knock at the door and went over to the door and there's nobody there. And as I start back across the room, J.D. says, what's that in the floor? And there was an envelope in the floor. And in the envelope were two banquet tickets. And so we went down and we were seated at the table with all the speakers. And it just so happened that night that there was a man there who was a speaker from Texas. His name was Jim W. And Jim was one of the funniest people in the whole world. And he had a way about him. And the program came alive listening to Jim that night. It was just what we needed, you know. It was just what we needed. And God provided all of that. And we never knew who did that, you know. We never knew. And it wasn't important. What's been important is we've been able to do things like that, to return those things. See, pass it on to other people. Pass it on, those kind of things. When I uh, focus on uh, the problems, nothing changes. 
when I start focusing on doing what I need to do and focus on making a change, I get change. Things change. You know, whatever you look for. This step says, restore you to sanity. Well, is that insulting or what? Does that sort of intimate that you may be a little off-center? <laughs> you know, I didn't dream that I was insane, but when I look back at it, my God, you know, I mean, at the time I'm going, but don't you see, I'm the one that held the family together. I'm the one that kept the job. I'm the one that kept the bills going. I'm also the one that kept making the bills. You know, see, <laughs> I didn't notice that for a long time because... J.D. would go out and spend money we didn't have. Well, if he can, so can I. (laughs) Is that nuts or what? You know, well, he quit drinking, so the the money for the alcohol and the jails and the fines and all like that went away. But you see, when he'd do that, I'd go to the mall to make myself feel better. And it took me a long, it took me 10 years to cover what I had done at the mall while he was drinking. He drank seven years after we were married, and during that seven years, I amounted to do enough debt to last us 17. Isn't that interesting? At this point, there's a gap in the recording. I assume that the person doing the recording had to change tapes or something, but I think you can pick up the thread pretty quickly. Nose to the trail, tail on the point, you know. (laughs) And I would find him, and he would be with a lower companion. And that would irritate me, so I'd find it necessary to slap her flat, turn the table upside down, throw a drink in his face, and I would pulverize him. And the bouncer would throw me out. Now, I haven't had a drink at all. He hasn't been barred from any bar. I've been barred from several bars and two pawn shops. (laughs) He would always pawn my stuff, not his, because he didn't have anything. It was all mine. Everything was all mine, you know. And so I would get into these these little troubles, you know. Uh, I've been attacked by a washing machine. I don't know how many of y'all have been attacked by your washing machine, but I was. I had these freak accidents that would happen to me. I had an old um, Frigidaire washing machine, and I think a drunk designed it. <laughs> when it would go into spin, see, the agitator didn't go back and forth. It went up and down. It really cleans your clothes well. But it, when it went into spin, it would time in knots. And it would go off balance. It even had a button on the front that said, reset. It knew it was going to go crazy. <laughs> so my mother, like say my mother worked at home. She was a dressmaker. And my mother prided herself in making clothes that would not come apart ever. And so she'd made a denim dress. Remember when we used to wear sack dresses? Some of the ladies here are old enough remember those. The, the long, and had long ties in front. And so I had this denim dress, had these long ties, and I'm in there trying to get my clothes untied, and I didn't realize my ties had flipped in. Now I'm here to tell you wet clothes grab. And this did not have the safety mechanism that when the lid is up, it won't go because it would. And so when I punched the reset button, I went down into the washing machine. It grabbed those ties, and I went down, and my head was on that agitator. I went through 16 minutes of drip dry. At the end of which, I didn't have a tooth in my head that wasn't loose. 
my jaws were black and blue, but it was all his fault. You see, if he'd have been home like he should have been, I wouldn't have been worrying about him when I was doing all this. I would have noticed that, so it wasn't my fault. You know, that's kind of crap, you know. That's great sanity there, you know. But the greatest insanity is doing the same stuff again and again and again. It doesn't work and keep going back to the problem, and it doesn't work. You know, I would not. I'm a good cook. And I would not make a recipe over and over again, leaving the same ingredient out every time and and making something flop and not do it that way again. I mean, I just can't imagine why I would do my life like that, but I did. And sanity doesn't necessarily instantly return the minute you walk through the doors of Al-Anon, you know. It takes a while. You know, I like I say, I still had an anger problem. And uh, my sister, we were doing some stuff work over at her house, and I had done some prior to that at my house, and I had used some spackling compound that was pre-mixed in a bucket. And so when we got ready to do hers, I said, oh, that's so much better than having to take that powder and mix it up and everything. I said, well, get the bready mixed. And so we went over. Uh, I called, and the store uh, said they had it, and we got over there, and they didn't have it. So we went into a Sears store, and I should have known better. I've never had um, uh, good experiences at Sears Roebuck. They have wonderful products. I'd keep going back for wonderful products, but I just couldn't seem to get service with my products. If I ordered something red and white, it would come yellow and brown. It didn't make any difference. You know, if I ordered something king size for the bed, it would come twin size. I don't know why, but it just seemed to be it's not a good place for you. But I couldn't, I couldn't accept that. And so I, I went to Sears and uh, I had called them ahead of time, explained to them in great detail. You know how we are. We, we explain in great detail. And I told them I did not want the kind with the powder that you mix. I wanted the pre-mixed. Oh yes, we have it. I drove all the way across and it was like about 18 miles across two cities to get to the Sears store. And the guy hands me the box of powder. And I said, what is this? And he says, well, that's your, the compound you wanted. And I said, I told you I wanted it pre-mixed. He said, well, this is just the same. You just take some water and what? <laughs> no, it is not the same. And I said, how could you? How could you lie to me like that? Just lied to me. When I asked you point blank and you lied to me. And I was just, oh, oh, oh. I wanted to hit him, and I knew if I did, I'd go to jail. And so, (laughs) but I had to do something. And so he's right next to the garden department. I ran over there, I grabbed a philodendron, and I went. (laughs) And I just bit that philodendron all the way up and down the vine. (sighs) And my sister is going. (laughs) And the guy backs up now. And I said, let's get out of here. And so we left, and, and my sister said, I've never seen anything quite like that. And uh, I told her, I said, well, it, it, this is nothing, trust me. <laughs> and so I was, you know, you have to confess to your sponsor. So I was telling her, and she's going, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't. Yeah, I did, yeah, I did. And she said, well, you're going to have to go back and make an amends. To a philodendron? <laughs> she said, that was not right. She said, who wants to buy a bit philodendron? 
Oh, God. So, okay, the next week I'm back over there. The philodendron still had the little tooth prints in the leaves. I went over there. I bought the philodendron. And I'm walking past the guy in the paint department, and he's backing up. <laughs> I'm and I said, I'd like to apologize for my inappropriate behavior. I lost my temper. And he said, I guess I really shouldn't have told you to come and get powder. I said to myself, no, asshole, you shouldn't. (laughs) And I said, thank you for that. And I walked out. (laughs) You see, you can say a lot in your mind if you just don't get it out. (laughs) Your insanity can come back upon you at any time. You know, your insanity can come back. And a lot of times for me, it's in stressful situations when the insanity comes back upon me, you know. Um, a few years ago, one of the girls I sponsored to call me, and she says, let's meet down in Dallas at the airport. And she says, let's go to the Four Seasons in Las Colinas and spend the weekend in the spa. I said, gosh, that sounds good. And she said, be my treat for Christmas. And I said, that sounds even better. <laughs> And so I met her down there, and I'm in this great big fancy, fancy spa. I mean, we have spas in Arkansas and what have you, but this not like there. And, I mean, there were movie stars going in that spa and the kind of stuff, and I'm just, oh, oh, oh. You know, I'm just looking at all this. And so the first thing, though, it's traumatic. It's traumatic when you think about when you're a big woman and you think about undressing and um, putting on these robes. And I'm looking for a dressing room. for the. You, they tell you put your clothes in the locker, and there's no dressing room. And I'm going, well, where do you take off your clothes? And they said, well, right there. And I go, oh, my God. Out in front of God and everybody. And they said, yeah, you know, everybody has the same. I said, well, maybe not as much, you know. <laughs> and so finally we get on and get in this big, fluffy robe and we go to what I refer to as the holding tank and this is where you go in and wait until they call you to come for whatever procedure and they have a giant hot tub that looks like the size of a swimming pool and then a cold tub another one on the other side and there's all these women that are just going over there and taking off their little thing and jumping in the hot tube naked as a pig bird and I am got my magazine I'm going oh god oh god I'm old-fashioned. Oh, God, you know. And then they get out of there, and they get in the coal tank, and I'm just, oh, God. I'm seeing more flesh than I ever wanted to see. And if you think I'm getting in there, you're not going to refuse to be harpooned. I refuse. <laughs> and so then they call my name, and they say, you know, come in. The girl's walking down the hall with me, and she said, and Tim will be your mis- Tim? Tim? Now, I've always had a woman masseuse, you know. Tim! Oh, I don't think so. Tim! And about that time, here's this very attractive young man, probably in his mid-twenties, in his little bitty short shorts and his tan, and he says, I'm Tim, and I'm going, oh, Jesus. I can't do this. And he says, if you'll just uh, lay there, and he says, uh, with your face down, and, and I'll be back in a few minutes, and I'm going, oh, God, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Oh, he'll tell everybody he did Moby Dick. I know he will, I know he will. (laughs) 
so anyway, I'm there laying on my face, and I decided to pray for everybody I know. Take your mind off of it. Pray for everybody you know. I'm praying away. I'm praying away. And this is beginning to feel good, you know, and he's getting down to my, my lower back, and I'm thinking, oh, God, this is good. And then your brain just goes against you. And your brain says, now, whatever you do now, don't fart. <laughs> And Tim says, oh, you got all stiff again. My mind says, stiff, stiff. You don't even know what stiff is. You you couldn't send a straw up my butt with a sledgehammer. I am stiff. If I can just live through this massage, you know. All in all, it was a great experience. <laughs> it was a nice experience that weekend. But that's what I'm saying. Your mind, you can go insane at any moment in time, you know. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.